You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's begin today with a case suggestion out of Michigan that has some feeling that justice might not have truly been served. Now, follow closely here at first, because the names are a bit confusing. But once we get the backstory, the names will all make sense. All right, in 2011, a family broke apart. Conrad Amerowicz and Joyce Conrad are getting divorced. So you heard that right. We have Conrad, that's the first name of the man, and Conrad is the last name of the woman. So Conrad and Joyce, that's their names. They're getting divorced. And Joyce also goes by Julie. So if you've read or watched anything on this case before, Joyce and Julie are the same person. And different outlets report the names differently. And I'll tell you, to be honest, in her court testimony, she introduces herself as Julie, but I'm actually going to call her Joyce just to keep everything clear because that seems to be the name that most outlets use. So we've got Conrad and Joyce. Now they have four children, Austin, Megan, Morgan, and Ian. And in 2011, when the couple divorces, Joyce is assigned primary custody of all the kids with Conrad seeing them every other weekend. Now, Joyce and Conrad are the divorced couple that can actually still communicate with each other. In fact, Joyce is always helping Conrad with his health. And even though they communicate, that doesn't mean it's not dysfunctional in some way. And let's be honest, we all have some level of dysfunction in our life, and theirs seems to be just a little elevated. But the situation seemed to be having Conrad in declining health. And then the added difficulty of alcoholism, and I'm going to be quite honest here, personal hygiene problems. All right, the kids are all in their teen years. When the court system in 2019 gets involved again and they realign the custody situation, the two younger children, Morgan and Ian, they're going to remain in custody with their mother, Joyce. And the two older children, Austin and Megan, well, they choose to go live with their father, Conrad. Now, it's October 1st of 2021, so the two have been living with him for a couple of years now, and that happens to be Megan's 18th birthday. 
She is all set to celebrate with friends, and the festivities include Megan getting her hair done at a local Groveland Township salon. After getting her hair done, she is set to spend the night in a hotel with friends. And this is kind of a common way to celebrate. It's your 18th birthday, and this is an adult way to begin that 18th year. But the day isn't going as planned. According to Megan, her father, Conrad, has been drinking, and he tells her that he's not going to be able to drive her to the hair salon to have her hair done. She claimed he said he was too drunk. Now, Conrad's living situation is less than stellar. His ex-wife, Joyce, in court, described the home as a house you would see in the TV show Hoarders. She said the kitchen was filthy and filled with trash bags and loose trash, so much so that you couldn't really walk in it. She said a small path led to the couch in the living room area. The home had two bathrooms, and one could still be used, but the lower bathroom, the one in the basement, well, it had a toilet full of feces, and it was loaded with more trash. And Joyce also said cat urine and feces were all throughout the house. And I could go on, but I think you get the idea of how Conrad was living at this time. Okay, well, the fight between Conrad and Megan, it escalates. And Megan's furious because her father is ruining her birthday. Now, Conrad sits down on the couch and he spends most of his time there. And he can't lay on the couch because... Some of the couch has stuff on it, so he's got this spot where he sits on the couch. And it appears that he's kind of drifting in and out of sleep at this time. And Megan, she's not done with the fight. She's mad her dad is sleeping and then waking back up. And so she's going to carry this on. Now, according to police interrogation video, Megan begins tossing things at her sleeping father. She claims she throws bread at him. And I'm a little unclear at why you would throw bread. And maybe that just speaks to her maturity level. And we're going to see later on that her maturity level does come into play here. She then begins throwing other items on her dad, like hairspray and other personal hygiene stuff. And then she tosses trash on him. And he's kind of awake during part of it and kind of asleep during part of it. And then eventually, she grabs a bottle of lye in powder form from somewhere in the house Now, lye can be used as a cleaning agent, and it's really toxic. You got to be careful with it. So after sprinkling the lye on her father, she then sprays him with water. Now, these two things might have happened in a different order. Maybe the water came first and then the lye, or maybe it was the lye, then the water. Megan hasn't really explained which way or even admitted to it. But the two chemicals mixed together, and Conrad ends up chemically burned on his arms, his torso, his legs, and his neck. And the fumes from the chemical mixture, well, it causes him to fall unconscious. Now, after tossing all the items on her father, Megan leaves. She's got a birthday to celebrate, and she's found a way to get to her festivities. Then after some time, a neighbor who is also Megan's friend goes to the home because Megan has called her and said, I need you to go figure out from my dad what the PIN number to his credit card is. Well, when she enters the home, she finds Conrad burned and unconscious on the couch. She testified that his legs were green and he had purple and red blotches all over his skin. She said all of his fingertips were dark red and that his fingernails had curled upward. Well, she immediately calls 911 and they transport Conrad to the local hospital. And this part of the story just gets even more weird. Austin, the oldest child who is 19, 
He rushes to the hospital to be by his dad's side. And Megan goes on with her birthday party. And by this time, she's called multiple people for help. See, the whole PIN number with her father's credit card is coming into play. She doesn't know the number. And she can't pay for the hotel room without it. So she's called her father, who of course didn't answer. Then she called her brother Austin. And then her mother Joyce. And her grandfather, Joyce's dad. All of those calls are asking for help with paying for the hotel room. Well, at the same time, Joyce is being called by a frantic Austin. He's hoping they can figure out what is going on and why his father has been burned and with what chemical. So Joyce agrees to try and help Austin and grandpa agrees to pay for the hotel room. So, you know, Megan's taken care of. So Joyce calls her daughter Morgan's boyfriend, Evan, asking him to help her. So Evan meets Joyce at Conrad's house. And I find this part really interesting. I couldn't find an explanation of why she didn't want to go into Conrad's house alone. Maybe she was smart enough to realize it could be a crime scene. Or maybe she was freaked out by the mess of the house. I don't know. But Evan and she enter the home in search of Conrad's cell phone and to see if they could identify a chemical. Now, in her court testimony... Joyce says she gags at portions of the home and the filth that she encounters. She steps on a bag of human feces near the couch, and she's reluctant to touch anything. But she does call Conrad's cell phone, and she hears the familiar hum of a phone on vibrate, and she can see a paper moving on the dining room table. So she grabs the phone that's under the paper, and her and Evan, they get out of there. When she arrives at the hospital, she finds Austin and Conrad in an emergency room where the hospital is preparing Conrad to be flown to a more acute hospital, one that can treat his burns, which are estimated to be on 40% of his body. And it's super interesting here. I would envision Conrad in immense pain, but Joyce describes him as having a jolly old time. That's how she said it on the stand, a jolly old time. He's talking, he's happy to see her, and maybe the pain meds were that good. I don't know. But by this time, Conrad is asked by everyone, hospital staff, Austin, his son, by Joyce, by the police. They're asking him, do you know what happened to you? He remembers the fight with Megan, but he doesn't know how he got burned. He also claims he's only had one drink. Well, things go from bad to worse for Conrad. Remember, his health isn't great. And the burns, they become untreatable. Over the next six months, he endures multiple infections. Both legs are amputated. He has numerous skin grafts. His kidneys begin failing. And hospital staff sends the 64-year-old home on hospice, where he dies three days later on March 22nd of 2022. So what's up with Megan during all of this? Well, six days after her birthday, police arrested Megan for assault with a harmful device. She was let out on bond, and an already broken family becomes more divided. And then, when her father dies, her charges are elevated to unlawful possession or use of irritants causing death, which is a felony that could result in life in prison if convicted. Now, she's placed back in the Oakland County Jail, awaiting her trial, and in June of 2023, Megan faced a jury of 12 of her peers. Now, during the trial, her brother Austin 
broke down on the stand when he relayed the decision of sending his father home on hospice care. He testified about how his father thought the burns might have come from a bug bomb that someone would have been using to help with fleas and spiders and such inside the house. Now, he also testified that his father could remember Megan throwing items at him on that day, but he could never distinctly say he saw the lie being thrown at him. And Austin did testify that he saw the white powder on the couch, and Joyce testified that she saw the powder as well. Austin also testified about the anger he had felt that night when his sister was showing nearly no concern for their father. He said all she wanted was the PIN number to the credit card so that she could pay for the hotel room. He testified that she even hung up on him when he said that he was with their father at the hospital. Now, testimony during the trial also showed Megan's friends received videos from her following her birthday incident, claiming she was her father's best friend, and that even though they fought often, she would not do anything to hurt him. Well, jurors, after four days of testimony, ultimately found Megan guilty of murder by toxic irritants. And then one month later, in July of this year, Megan was sentenced by Judge Victoria Valentine to one year in prison with credit for time served. Megan had already been incarcerated for 506 days, which meant Megan was essentially freed that day. Now, during the sentencing, Joyce spoke about her daughter, saying that the broken home created a broken family, and that Megan, despite now being 19 years old, was not at the maturity level of a 19-year-old. She also described how Megan was prevented from seeing her father in the hospital by the restrictions that her older brother Austin had put in place. Then Megan, who did not testify during the trial, spoke at the sentencing hearing. She made a tearful plea to the judge that included her calling her father her hero, saying he was a storyteller, a tooth fairy, and a friend, and that through it all, he was her father. She also said her biggest battle through the last year and a half has been fighting self-harm. She said she was scared her father will think she didn't love him and that she would often lie to cover up his alcoholism and the fact that he was so drunk that he would relieve himself in plastic bags by the couch because he couldn't make it to the bathroom. She begged the judge to let her realize her goals in life. She quoted scripture and asked the judge to allow her the chance at freedom so that she could help other children that had similar situation to hers. Now, three hours following the sentencing hearing, Megan walked out of the jail with her two younger siblings and a friend. Her first stop was McDonald's, where she ordered chicken nuggets and fries. And she admitted to reporters that she was surprised that the judge handed down such a lenient punishment. She said she had prayed for a miracle and that she received one that day. All right, I'm sure there is a portion of the Rise in Crime listeners frustrated by this sentencing. And I get it. If you're frustrated, you aren't the only ones. State prosecutors were also frustrated by the amount of time that Megan was sentenced to serve. The state asked the judge to restrict Megan with ankle monitors during her probation, and the judge declined to do so. Sentencing guidelines are something we could debate for hours. But there is one more twist to this story, and I didn't see this one coming. While incarcerated in the Oakland County Jail, Megan became best friends with an older woman named Jennifer Crumley. And that name, well, it might sound familiar to you. Jennifer and her husband, James, are currently awaiting trial for aiding their son, Ethan, in a mass shooting of a high school in Oxford, Michigan in 2021. That shooting killed four people and left seven others injured. 
Jennifer and James are accused of not providing psychological help for their son, Ethan. They also bought him the gun that he used just days before the monstrous act of ambushing the school. And Megan told Court TV the following, I have a best friend that's in jail, and she was with me through this whole thing. She helped me write my statement. She just told me to speak with my heart. She helped me write the things that I didn't know how to put into words. Well, I guess jail brings some interesting people together. Now, the Crumleys could spend up to 15 years in prison in a case that is one of a kind. Parents until now have not been held accountable for the crimes of their children's mass shooting sprees. So we've got Megan Free, the family completely divided, and we have got Conrad, who's passed on. So let's remember Conrad for more than the troubled past of his alcoholism and his questionable hygiene. He was a child of Polish immigrants who traveled to America when Conrad was two and a half years old. His mother invented a heat curable epoxy resin that still holds a patent today. He had one brother and Conrad was the biological father to Austin and Megan and the adopted father to his two younger children, Morgan and Ian. And I'm really actually saddened I couldn't find more on Conrad. It's almost as if he was lost in this bizarre family dynamic and a trial that really wasn't about him even though he was the victim. We're left with a hope that Megan can find some help and that her family can heal, if that's even possible. I promise you guys updates all the time and I've got one in the trial of Ms. Showbusiness. And I know you guys remember this one. How can you not? The detailed telling of this story of the Wisconsin murder is in the July 27th episode of Rise and Crime. But let's catch everyone up. 25-year-old Taylor, whose legal name is Taylor Shabusiness, she had it changed a few years back. She was dating 24-year-old Shad Thyreon. Now, Taylor's husband, yeah, she has a husband. Taylor's husband is in prison, and she is carrying on romantically, as well as carrying on with her abusive behavior with drugs, while her husband is serving his prison time. Now, she and Shad had been using drugs back in February of 2022. And upon returning to Shad's home, which is actually the basement of Shad's mother's home, well, Taylor and Shad, they continue to use drugs there, and then they have sex for several hours. Eventually, Taylor strangles Shad during one of the sexual encounters that evening. She then continued to have sex with his dead body. Then after that disgusting behavior, she dismembered Shad, removing his internal organs with everyday kitchen knives that she found upstairs in Shad's mother's kitchen. She placed Shad's head in a five-gallon bucket and put other body parts in totes and plastic bags, which she just left in the basement of Shad's mother's home. Taylor took a leg and placed it in a crockpot box and transported the box in her minivan to her own apartment. Well, eventually, Shad's mother went into the basement and she removed the towel that was covering the five-gallon bucket. She discovered her son's head and her boyfriend called authorities. Taylor was arrested later that day, still in her bloody clothes. She was charged with murder, mutilation of a corpse, and third-degree sexual assault. Now, the next few months were full of business shenanigans that included attacking her attorney in a courtroom, being assigned a new attorney, smiling and smirking when explaining the crime, falling asleep in court, trying to flash the judge, 
And she even burst into laughter when the court was deciding if the jurors should be shown photos of Shad's decapitated head. Well, in July, Miss Shabiznis was found guilty of all charges, and late last month, she was sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder. She was also sentenced to seven and a half years for mutilating a corpse and three additional years for third-degree sexual assault. It took the jury just 50 minutes to come to their conclusion of guilty. Now, the life in prison was expected, but their response from her attorney was not quite what followers of the trial and sentencing thought would happen. And the way that Taylor showed up for her sentencing was strange as well. So let's tackle the attorney part first. Her attorney, Chris Froelich, told Fox News that he feels that Taylor should be given a chance at the possibility of getting out of prison on extended supervision or parole after some work like therapy and counseling. Froelich also hinted that he felt a mistrial should have been decided in this case. He said the judge who witnessed Taylor attack her lawyer should have recused himself after witnessing the altercation because he would no longer be able to be impartial. He also said the judge should have recused himself when Taylor attempted to flash him. The attorney also questioned if one of the charges against Taylor was appropriate. He asked the question, how could there be sexual assault in this case? He said once Shad was dead, you can't claim sexual assault. He said the only appropriate charge was mutilation of a corpse. Okay, how about how she showed up in court? Taylor was wearing a spit hood. This is a, a like a white covering that allows only her hair and eyes to be visible. And it's called a spit hood because it protects others from Taylor potentially spitting on them. Her attorney claimed that Taylor had had an incident earlier in the day at the jail and that the hood was preventative because of that situation. But the hood led many onlookers to speculate that the attorney requested she wear it so that the judge and gallery couldn't see her laughing or smiling during the court hearing. Now, during the sentencing, Taylor's father, Arthur Coronado, took the stand in an orange jumpsuit and shackles. See, Arthur was sentenced to 12 years in prison back in 2018 for sexually assaulting a child. He was there to speak in behalf of Taylor. Her attorney said the fact that her father showed up to testify in her behalf shows that she has people invested in her best interests. He said that her family relationships show that she is not a throwaway, that she's not a waste, and that she should be given a chance. But the Brown County Deputy District Attorney Caleb Saunders, who prosecuted the case, reminded the judge that Taylor had told detectives that the murder happened because she liked it. He also told the judge that Shad was a good, quiet kid who would always hug his dad. He said that Taylor would still be able to hug her father once he was released from prison and he could visit her. But he made it clear that Shad would never be hugging any of his family members ever again. Now, the judge told the courtroom that the offense in this case cannot be overstated. He said the crimes offended human decency, they offended human dignity, and that they offend the human community. The judge also said there was a need to protect the public from Taylor and her heinous crimes. Okay, when I think of this case, of course there are so many things to shake your head at. Taylor's business, her name, her depravity, her bizarre behavior. But then I think about Shad's mom, who removed that towel to discover her son's severed head. How does she go on? If you're the praying kind, maybe send one up for Shad's mom, Tara. She could use all of our collective kindness. And we have time for this quick story out of Utah. On May 24th, 
Lehigh, Utah police officers pulled over 25-year-old Emery Hall and 30-year-old Aubrey Merrill. The car was being tracked by officers who were following the digital footprint of a stolen Apple Watch. When officers approached the car, they could see several bags of what they believed to be stolen goods in the back seat. Officers called in to get a warrant. They needed to do things by the book, which we totally appreciate here, right? And as they were waiting for the warrant to be granted, authorities believe Emery Hall called her friend Dorothy Moran and asked for some help in getting out of this situation. Well, just two minutes later, someone using Dorothy's phone called 911 saying someone was headed to Lehigh High School with an AK-47 with the intention of shooting several people at the school. Now, of course, the officer was called away from the traffic stop. In fact, at least 40 officers from multiple agencies showed up at the school that was eventually evacuated and cleared. Now, obviously, the call was later determined to be a hoax, and I think we can all say thank goodness for that. And then this week, Dorothy was charged with falsely reporting a school shooting. But there's more to Dorothy's past. Back in 2006, Dorothy showed up at Alta View Hospital in Utah on the verge of giving birth. She admitted herself into the hospital under the name Andori Sachs. A baby girl was born just a short time later. After the baby was taken to the nursery and the room was clear of medical personnel, Dorothy snuck out of the hospital, leaving the baby behind. When the Division of Child and Family Services staff contacted who they believe was Andori Sachs, they quickly figured out she wasn't the woman who had given birth. The real Andori told investigators that her driver's license and other identification had been stolen in February. She said none of her financial information had been compromised and that she just never got her ID back. Well, Dorothy used that ID to admit herself to the hospital to give birth. She also bailed from the hospital because she had two outstanding warrants for $30,000 each, and she had a long criminal history of various drug crimes, forgery, and burglary. And the stealing of someone's ID? Well, it wasn't the first time Dorothy had done that either. She was arrested in 2004 for the exact same crime. Now, the baby girl was turned over to foster care. And on a sweet note, Deseret News reported that multiple families had called asking to adopt the abandoned baby. And a hospital spokesperson also said that the silver lining is that Dorothy chose to have the baby at a hospital where the baby could receive the needed care, especially since it was reported that Dorothy used drugs during the pregnancy. Now, Dorothy was charged with fraud in that 2006 case. Those charges were dropped when she chose to plead guilty to her theft charges and pay restitution. So... We'll just have to wait and see if she can plea her way out of the fake school shooting call. And the two women in the car with the potentially stolen goods? Well, they have been charged with burglary in multiple theft cases in the Lehigh area. All right, that's your Monday episode of Rise in Crime. Give us a follow on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And thanks for the five-star reviews and the case suggestions. If you haven't left a review, please do. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there.